The Dime is sponsored by ETH Revolution. The cannabis industry has unique challenges, which means you need a multifaceted partner to help you navigate the landscape. ETH Revolution has a team of experienced science and business experts to provide a unique analytical approach, providing services from capital to cannabinoid and everything in between. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I've got my right-hand man, Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Andrew Ward, author of The Art of Marijuana Etiquette and featured writer in all the industry's top publications. Andrew, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Hey, guys. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you having me. Doing real well. I'm uh, excited to be here. Yeah, it's awesome having a, a Brooklyn base. We're pushing the East Coast really hard. Kellen, how are you yeah. doing today? Doing well, feeling uh, feeling like the minority out here being the only West Coast guy on the show today. You got the access to nature, so you know a little bit of a <laughs> give and take. And I think to to steal off uh, Colin Landforce, I think it's East Coast best coast. I think is what he said. Uh. Exactly like that, but that's the way I heard it. That's the way I heard it. so. Uh, before we get into it, Andrew, can you kind of give the listeners a little bit about your background? Yeah. So I've uh, been a writer in the cannabis space for about five years now. Um, I'm a freelance writer. I work with some notable publications currently include Benzinga, High Times, Business Insider. Started writing for a new psychedelics publication. It's coming out soon called Psychedelia. I've also written for some of the top brands in the industry. Not going to name them just because I uh, don't know if they want to be named out. But, you know, some notable brands that if you've been in some of the major markets, especially in the West Coast and some starting on the East Coast, I've worked with them, as well as some up and coming spots, advocacy groups, things like that. Kind of tried to keep a diverse background in the space. I graduated in 2008 with a degree in creative writing and was told I was never going to be able to use the degree because of the recession and was able to use the sales and marketing jobs that I had for a few years and actually leverage it into what ended up becoming the cannabis job. And uh, yeah, since then, it's really grown into a great career. It's still pretty surreal. Um, the Art of Marijuana Etiquette, my second book, came out in 2021. I wrote my first book, uh, Cannabis Jobs, in 2019. So yeah, it's all been kind of a blur and uh, it's really awesome to be here talking about it. So tell us the single moment or a defining moment in your life where you realized you wanted to be in the cannabis industry. So when I wanted to be in the cannabis industry it was right around 2017. I probably a couple of months back, I'd been working at a startup that really didn't pan out well. Um, it was paying well, but aside from that, it really didn't live up to any of the expectations that it had. Real clear writing on the wall was that we were going to part ways, but I said, the hell with it. We're going to ride it till the wheels come off and we're going to, you know, do a best effort, but we're also going to stack the money and prepare for this freelance career that was going to be embarking on. Uh, I got I laid off uh, January 2017, had a little bit of a nest egg. So I spent the next two months kind of trying to figure out what sectors I wanted to be in. I was kind of feeling it out. I hadn't had enough time to really prep and find the industry I wanted to be in. So I ended up defaulting back into a lot of areas that I already knew, uh, startups, tech, things like that. Really, you know, nothing wrong with them, but they just really weren't appealing to me, weren't really making me happy or stimulated. It just kind of was just harder to find work. Um, and then probably around month two and a half, three, I was, you know, uh, packing a bowl like I usually do in the evening, just kind of kicking back. And, you know, it, it wasn't new advice, but I saw an interview that I think it was Dave Grohl who was, you know, doing it. And basically said something along the lines of, you know, find something that you love and find someone to pay you for it. And I was thinking, I was like, yeah, I'm trying to do that right now. And I was like, well, what do I love? And, you know, I pretty much had the bowl in my hands. I was like, oh shit, this is 
an opportunity right here. I'm sorry, can I curse on this, by the way? Yeah, you can do whatever you want. Oh, okay. oh yeah. I thought, right. I thought, I think I thought, so I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, so I was like, oh shit, you know, cannabis actually has an opportunity for it and it might actually be a little early. So um, I started feeling it out. And, I, you know, I'd been reading a lot of publications. You know, I think at that time it was Civilized, High Times, Mary Jane were kind of the go tos and a few occasional news stories here and there. I thought, you know, I could get involved in this and kind of bring over my sales and marketing experience as well as with my journalism background and kind of, you know, see what we can do with it. And that's where it all started out. And I started cold uh, emailing like I would uh, business development leads and basically said, I was like, I have two articles from when I wrote at AOL on weed. Are you willing to take a a low income shot on me as a writer? And uh, I booked my first job was a rosin press company um, out of Colorado. Ended up working with them for about four years. Yep. Yeah, Colorado, Kellen, <laughs> shout out. Um, yeah. <laughs> they were they were awesome, great client. I actually wrote for a cannabis publication, Cannabis Culture in Canada. And then the Rosin Press Company got me introduced to Pot Guide, which was my first US publication in Colorado, also. And uh, it kind of took off from there. And you know, ever since then, it's just kind of been a whole fun journey for the last five years. Yeah, it's it's such a great story, especially one we're describing with the bowl in your hand, right? Like realizing like this is this is what I love, this is the industry. And I guess my question follow-up would be like, when you told people or shared with them that you were taking a journey and it was early, right? From an East Coast standpoint, you're telling them you're going to be in the cannabis industry, you're going to be a writer. What were the type of looks that people were giving you when you were expressing that? Oh yeah. People thought that was a terrible idea. Um, (laughs) So it was a combination of either they thought I was going to go to jail for being a drug dealer somehow, even though I explained it was writing and it's nothing related to it. Other people thought it was just another step in, you know, a bad mental health uh, spiral. It's like, you've been laid off. It's the winter time. Are you okay? Like you're really entering the space that has no prospects. Like, or do you want to sabotage your career? Like it was really like concerns about my decisions on a mental health or professional level across the board. I've always had a good intuition on myself. You know, I've made some mistakes along the way, like we all have, but you know, I also just feel like when I know something is right, I just go with it. And I told everyone, I was like, just give me six months to a year and I can start getting a proof of concept going. And, you know, I also told people, I was like, as much as I know, I want to get into marijuana right away. And it, I did. I also knew that there wasn't going to be enough money unless I really struck lightning, you know, right out the gate and, you know, was able to do it. And I wasn't. So it probably took about two years before that. So I was really working in a couple of different spaces. So I've worked in, you know, HR, tech, you know, staffing, those sort of areas, more traditional field. And I think that started to make people realize that this is actually a business plan. And by year three, when it finally accelerated, they're like, okay, we'll, we'll stop criticizing you now. Yeah. They're probably like in the beginning, they're like, that seems like a crazy idea. Now they're like, yeah, we knew it was going to be great from the beginning, Andrew. We told oh, yeah. you <laughs> cannabis oh, is yeah. an emerging market. You, you were way out of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we're not too far away from people being like, I was the one who told you to get into the cannabis industry. <laughs> like, yeah, sure. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah, I have all those red receipts. None of those were actually true. But yeah. I think that's the sign you're on to something, right? Is when people start pushing back, like, are you a little crazy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, and anytime there was a setback along the way, like, you know, anytime in business, freelance, anybody who's managing their own clients, when you lose a client, you know, you kind of go into a little bit of a spiral trying to figure out what you do. And the I really started to know which people in my tight circle got it and didn't get it when I would have my back against the wall and which ones would kind of try to offer advice or how they would respond. I was dating someone at the time and she told me, it was like, well, maybe you should just go back to the office. And I was like, you know, I get where you're coming from with that. But if you know me and my drive on this, 
you know that that's not an option for me because cannabis in the office was not something at the time really that was taking much shape outside of, you know, some of the West Coast states. And, you know, just the freedom as a writer, as a creative, I'm not against going back to an office one day, but at that time, there was just no way that that was making the right sense for me. So over time, you really start to see the people that kind of understood and went along for the ride and kind of understood that this was going to be a journey and that, you know, it's still ongoing. And, you know, those are the ones now that uh, I like to have in my corner. Yeah. And I mean, back then, I I would assume we were in the first inning. Now we're probably like in the bottom of the first inning, right? Or second. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. It's funny though, the people that think we're in like the seventh or eighth, it's like, no, 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 no. We're close. No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. We're still missing like major, major markets coming online. And we still don't have like any of the normal infrastructure that most businesses and industries just take for granted, like banking, for instance. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's hilarious to, well, sadly hilarious the way that some people are like, we're going to have it all done in the next five years and we're going to have it all regularly. We're going to have it all figured out. I was like, go talk to anyone in the alcohol industry and ask how things are going on their space. You know, they're still fragmented 80 years after prohibition or 80 plus years after prohibition. You know, cannabis, there's a good chance if, we, if we're like, have it all figured out before we retire from the industry, then we will have done it at a really quick pace. Yeah, which doesn't seem like we're really moving at that speed. Nah, so just enjoy it while we're here. So you've written over 500 publications, I think I saw. Like 700 bylines. It's a padded a little bit because this is a whole tangent I'll go on, so I won't do it. But a lot of companies (laughs) do... content scraping where they'll okay. take the content from one partner and then put it on the, on their site. So that'll count as a byline for you. You won't get paid for it, but you know, they'll use it. So that's kind of padded up. So it's probably about 500, 600 original articles, seven, 800 uh, bylines now in cannabis. That's incredible. Yeah. So I want to ask, this is my question for you. So yeah. which topic that you've written about has surprised you the most? Hmm. In terms of surprise, I don't know. I would love to say it was the most effective series that I'm doing on prisoners because I would love to, you know, be surprised about the process that those people went through or are going through. But that really actually is pretty par for the course that the system kind of screws them over and sticks it to them. You know, I think the thing that really surprised me more than anything was the response out of COVID. You know, it was the uncertainty. What was going to happen to us? Are we going to get laid off? Are we going to see regression? And as soon as the essential status went in, you just saw the whole 180 on expectations. You know, there were a few people that were maybe warm or hip to the idea that we were going to end up in that area. But, you know, kind of like what you're saying, a lot of people is like, oh, I, I told you getting cannabis. There were a lot of people in COVID times early on were saying, you know, we got to get out. We got to figure out. We got to pivot. What are we going to do? And to see the response on the staffing side, the job side, you know, the industry altogether. I think that was what was really most surprising. Um, really pleasant surprise for sure. But um, I didn't, you know, just five years ago getting into this space, I wouldn't have thought that we would have been there by now. And, you know, just to see the response we had after the panic that it momentarily set in, it was great. Kellen, dive in there. Was that a defining moment for you as well? Obviously, COVID was was hard for all of us. Was that something that you were surprised with the industry's kind of bounce back? Yeah, I think it was the first time that you saw like government support for the space, like openly. Right. And there's just been so many times being in the industry where you talk to people and you're like, oh, I'm in the cannabis industry. And at least from my experience, people are like, oh, so you just grow weed. And I'm like, no, I actually don't even know how to grow any weed. (laughs) (laughs) I've never done that before. But just to be like stereotyped like that previous and then to see like state's response and having it be declared essential across the West Coast, mainly right in the adult use states was phenomenal in my opinion. I mean, it was just a complete 180 from cultural acceptance. Now everyone's like, oh, wow, it's a real thing. It's here to stay. 
and and all the support was phenomenal. What was your opinion on of it, Brian, over on the on the East Coast, seeing that happen? Yeah. So obviously, the pandemic was challenging, and in the beginning, I was a little more dependent on alcohol than I'd like to publicly admit. But times were tough, and things were really stressed out. And you know, at the end of the day, you know, you were leaning on things you need to lean on. And I think the mm-hmm. defining moment for me was Kellen was when you sent me the gear package, which really changed my perspective because I've had on and off love and, and hate with cannabis when I've had some bad products where it kind of sent me down my anxiety on a rabbit hole. And then you kind of sent me some of the, the lower one-to-ones and it really rejuvenated my love for the products because I think there's this major misconception out there that like high THC is everything that everyone consumes and that everyone's looking to just get blitzed off their face. And, and for me, I didn't like that feeling. What I love about cannabis is like the creative aspect, the fun, the enjoying, the ideas, like the free flowing, the energy that gives me. And, and that's not for me is not the high THC. So that was a big moment in my life too, where I kind of could lean on cannabis and it was there for me where I didn't have to wake up in the morning after being like, wow, I crushed an entire bottle of wine. Good for you, Bri, but also with a headache. So it was mm-hmm. a tough moment. Yeah, you know, I'm working with a bunch of clients and that's really a big narrative that they're trying to get across now is that, you know, THC is important, but it's not the only factor, you know, low dose is really great as well as, you know, the entire whole plant profile, you know, really it depends on what you're seeking. And, you know, THC is, it's kind of like this outdated metric that we use, you know, uh, it's just one part of a whole equation to it. It's a real big concern with the THC caps to see it because, you know, for people like you, one-to-ones are awesome, but you know, there's medical patients that could need those high doses and, you know, those caps are really going to be a problem. And all they're seeing is the reaction of, you know, of a recreational user, quote unquote, recreational user shouldn't have a hundred plus milligram product or something like that. But, you know, it's a big wide spectrum and there's a lot of education that needs to come from it. And, you know, hopefully COVID will have taught people that a little bit. And I think on the, on the public side, we're getting that, but with lawmakers, it didn't seem to budge the needle at all. I think it's money driven that why they're, they're pushing that concept. Money driven, but also I think fear. I think it's a, a lot of it is that a lot of lawmakers don't know anything about cannabis and they're being told whatever their lobbyists, whatever they're, you know, the people in their ear are telling them. So, you know, if you told them cannabis was moldy and gave you cancer, you know, if you don't know anything about it and that's what your circle's saying, you're going to believe those sort of laws. If, you know, someone comes in there and tells you, you know, THC is the driving force for what's causing, you know, cannabis intoxication and the effects of cannabis. And we don't have to worry about anything else. So we should cap everything at 50 to 100 milligrams of product. It makes sense. But, you know, you would also expect lawmakers to be better and actually read and understand. But. Yeah, that's too high of a bar of a threshold for American lawmakers right now, I suppose. I mean, it's tough, too, because early stages in Colorado, there was a hard time um, with like quality control on edibles. Right. And you had one or two stories that came out where some recreational user, first time trying it, going to dispensary, purchase an edible and then had a freak out and the cops were called and it made the headlines. Then that's what the politicians are kind of planting their flag on. Right. So it's, it's challenging because you do have these two spectrums of consumers, right? You have the consumer who uses regularly and could probably handle much higher caps. And then you have the soccer mom who you really probably don't want to eat a hundred milligrams. Right. (laughs) So, so like, where's the balance there? You know what I mean? It's a really hard target to hit with one, with one arrow, if you will. 
hundred percent. I don't, and yeah, I don't even know if you can hit it all with one arrow. Uh, you know, it's such a large demographic of consumers and needs, like you just said, you know, just those two points alone just cover one area of it. You know, one of the things I would love to see is more public education on ratios and dosing. You know, like Brian said, one to one is great. But um, one of my favorite things I love telling people that aren't too aware of the cannabis space is, you know, if you're new to cannabis before trying out any products, it's really good to have a CBD product on hand, whether it be a sublingual or a smokes product, be a vape or flower, because it can help offset the effects of it. You know, I stopped short of telling people it's essentially a kill switch, but you know, imagine if you could get drunk and drink a glass of water and it actually would negate a lot of the effects or another drug. There really aren't many that have that. And, you know, those freak out moments, sure, those high dose pro- like products, you know, you don't want them to get into the hands of the soccer moms or the newcomers or people that don't react well to it. But if you would also educate them and said, hey, you know, bring a CBD pen with you and, you know, just smoke on this if you feel the effects are too long, you know, yeah, maybe one or two people end up calling the hospital still, but that will even drop down that low number of people that were reporting those. So I think it just comes down to public education. But again, lawmakers don't know anything about the bill for the most part. So unless it's, you know, Blumenauer or a handful of the other ones that actually know what they're talking about, we're going to see what the hell they put together. But like to kind of follow up on that, like no one kind of bats an eye when the same sucker mom drinks five bottles of wine and then once gets behind a car, right? Like no one's like, well, we should have educated her on the fact that like that was a bad choice decision. People are adults. And if you're going to make adult decisions, you should probably know what you're doing in those instances. And you're right. Like there's this massive stigma behind it and all these other issues. But from an educational standpoint, like I don't even know where we start, right? Because we've done some analysis on like CBD, THC, especially here on the East Coast. And there's such, um, I wouldn't say misinformed, but such a lack of understanding of the industry as a whole. People buy products and go, will it get me high? And it's like, well, what'd you buy? And he goes, I bought a CBD product from the gas station. And it's like, no, it, yep. it, sh- it shouldn't get you high. And he's like, someone's like, well, I took it and then I got high. And now you're wondering, you're like, was it the placebo effect? Was it the type of product? Was it the person just telling themselves this? It, there's so many layers to this. So I guess, Andrew, where do we start from an educational standpoint? Yeah, you know, I, I think what you just said is so true because I actually had a friend who did the same thing, bought CBD products from a gas station. They actually work. Um, you know, it's such a dice roll. Um, you know, when you were saying that, my first thought was regulation. You actually have to have legalization regulation to have that in place because once you have that in place, then we have some uniform codes and then we can actually start setting up a structure. Otherwise, it's all about on the public. And, you know, there's been some great work for advocates and, you know, uh, writers and, you know, some companies in the media space. Like a lot of people are putting together an effort to educate folks, but we only have a certain amount of a reach. You actually have to have the government behind it. So, you know, they want to talk about how, you know, cannabis is problematic. It's like, okay, well, legalize it or decriminalize it at the very least and put together information campaigns and put together all this stuff to get out to the public and, you know, talk to them about milligrams, talk to them about how why THC is just one part of the subject. You know, you're not going to be able to reach everyone and it's going to be a large campaign and it's not always going to appeal to everyone. But by putting that sort of information out there, we'll definitely start to tackle the information gap. And, you know, maybe in a few decades, we won't have to put together these materials. You know, um, I mean, someone reminded me, what was it? Uh, click it or ticket. It was finally got people to start uh, putting our, their seatbelts on. You know, it's just these small sort of things that you might not think actually work that come together. So I don't know. I think you know standardization and putting other campaigns actually could be the most effective way. Yeah, and I think decriminalization provides potentially could provide funding for a program that could certify bud tenders, right? Like 
There's yeah. CPAs, there's CFAs. I know those are very drastically different certifications, right? But providing a standard like test or accreditation program for the bud tenders would be a game changer in the whole industry because then any consumer that goes into a dispensary nationwide at that point is going to talk to someone who at least is on the same page as someone out in California, who's on the same page as someone out in New York. And they're all going to be communicating similar information from what's going on with these products in terms of THC and CBD, and then the, the whole entire terpene conversation as well. So I think that decriminalization and legalization is the first step in, in building those kind of programs from an educational standpoint. I, I think that was awesome. I kind of wish we can cut that out <laughs> and steal that idea for ourselves. Like, as you're saying that, I was like, dude, that's perfect. Like that, you're right. That 100% has to happen, right? There has to be like a general understanding and general framework so people can kind of be licensed. I mean, I don't know particular, but I think there's one for like, if you're a bartender, you take some sort of like test as well to mm-hmm. kind of accredit yourself towards this understanding. And you're right. Like it's only a matter of time and some company likely will do something like that and probably become a really successful company. Yeah. You're starting to see some companies, you know, get into the space of trying to make cannabis sommeliers and, you know, some stuff like that. So they're kind of dancing in the periphery of it to kind of, I can see like a serve safe kind of like what you're saying, become one of the first things, how to handle cannabis and then branching into more of a deeper education sort of thing. It only makes sense. You know, it's a product so readily used by the public and it is a medical and recreational product. So you might as well get the informed folks behind it. It only makes sense. Yeah. I think that's the most exciting part for me personally. in thinking about the cannabis industry is that like, essentially cannabis will operate like all the other industries. They'll have all the same type of like certifications and testings and steps and steps. And here we are in the infancy and talking about like, oh, this has it in this industry and this infancy. And we know someone's going to come out in the near future and create this. And it's just the, as you're, if you're an entrepreneur, like this is the most exciting time to be in a space like cannabis, where you can really lay the groundwork to, to build something that can have lasting effect. Yeah, this is um, you know a generational opportunity. I don't think we've seen something like this since the dot-com bubble. And I think this is going to obviously have a lot more strength and security behind it than that. I can't really recall much else in a long time since then. So yeah, it's a really great time to get into the industry and you know just learn and get in. So let's kind of switch gears here. The art of marijuana etiquette. Sophisticated guide to the high life. Yeah. Where did the inspiration come from? Uh, my editor. Uh, (laughs) So I tell people I have a very non-traditional route that I think a lot of people think with books. And this is the case with a lot of books is you pitch, you get a literary agent, you get connected, and then you get a big advance and then you write a book. That's not what happened with me at all. Around year three, when people stopped criticizing me for being a cannabis writer, I think the first book really helped. They, uh, this couple, uh, my publisher, Skyhorse, they're a subsidiary of Simon & Schuster until they got bought by Penguin. So I don't know how the hell that breaking order works out now. But Skyhorse reached out to me and basically said, you know, we're looking for a book on cannabis jobs. And this is the same process with marijuana etiquette. So basically they were like, you know, we got this thought on an idea for a book. Are you interested in working with it? And I said, yeah. And we started talking and brainstorming ideas. With marijuana etiquette, they originally had this idea for kind of doing it in a more comedic sort of, you know, uh, those regal sort of fancy etiquette teachers from the old like 1900 days. And we worked that tone for a couple of months. And day one of writing it, I basically sat at the computer and I was like, this is going to be terrible if I have to write this. Um, So I contacted the editor and was just told him, I was like, look, um, I can either give you the advance back and you go find another writer, or you can let me write the book from the perspective of, you know, a person in the cannabis space who knows a bunch of people who has a bunch of experience. And I can, you know, get opinions from those folks and myself and give you a book from, you know, 
the on the ground in the actual community sort of thing. And thankfully they, they went with that and they let me run with it. And uh, yeah, we got to work on it from there. And uh, yeah, it was a fun process from there because then it was just kind of filling in the gaps, you know, thinking of all the standard rules, then the rules that I wish had been discussed, really checked a lot of blog posts and other books that were written on it, mainly Lizzie Post book that had come out while our book was in production and, you know, kind of assessing it, making sure that we were kind of going in an area that I thought wasn't really going to be covered by everyone else's. And hopefully that was the case. Who do you intend to read the book or who do you think is the correct audience for this? Like people who consume cannabis, people who are interested in cannabis, take us through that. So I think it's a combination of two things. I think, you know, anybody who loves cannabis books and community related things, uh, it's kind of something to snap up and have as a coffee table book, bookshelf book, you know, kind of take it out, thumb through it, that sort of thing. I also think it's really good for the more of the newcomers, the 101s, the, you know, the people that want to possibly get into cannabis, but might be overwhelmed by it or don't have a community themselves for it. So, you know, it's kind of a fun, semi-serious, also semi-informative sort of look into that. So really geared toward the amateurs, but also keeping in mind the OGs, the legacies, as well as just the people that are coming up and helping shape the industry along the way and kind of giving a nod to all of them, but really uh, keeping it on a simple tone that wasn't going to get lost for anyone that didn't really uh, know much about the plant just yet. I think that's perfectly said. And when I started kind of reading and going through it, I like had an envision for what I thought it would be like when it says like etiquette and like a sophisticated guide to the high life and kind of went in thinking it would be like that and was was so different than I thought. It was such a warm, easy read with like the personality really came through in the pages. And it, it's fun too, because like sometimes in cannabis, you can do that where you can really embody your spirit into the writing. And I think it really comes through because it's, it is informative and it's funny too, some of the cliches you kind of dive into like puff, puff, pass and like never uh, like leave the circle, which I thought was really mm-hmm. funny and a different, interesting way to kind of communicate the information. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's, you know, um, the way I looked at it was, you know, um, I didn't want to make it too overwhelming. I didn't want to make it too hard. You know, I just wanted to make it a fun read. I kind of modified the Hemingway rule of write drunk, edit sober, definitely wrote high, edited semi-sober. Um, and that was kind of, you know, the first couple rounds. And, you know, we would refine it further on. But, you know, the first couple rounds, I was chock full of grammar errors. And, you know, the syntax was even clunkier than it was right now because it was really just, you know, trying to get into that spirit and try to have fun. And basically, I was trying to think like, basically, if I was smoking a joint with you guys in a room and you were asking me questions, it was kind of how I wanted to put it that way. And then from there, we just refined it. And, you know, shout out to my editor, Jason. He did really good because every once in a while, I'd be like, okay, that made no sense whatsoever. You got to, <laughs> he's like, you were definitely smoking too much there or that one was just like, I don't know what that, like, I, I also have these weird things in the book. I don't know if people noticed that, like, I tried to put in nonsense references. Um, I worked in the R&B group T- TLC like two or three times into the book. Uh, and, uh, and those are kind of, and like in non-music entertainment references too. Like, I think I put them in a hiking chapter at one point. You know, it, it was just kind of like, I'm stoned. Let's have fun with this. Like, I want, like, if I'm reading a book, what kind of random bullcrap is going to pop up that's going to make me laugh or at least like, what the hell is this person thinking? And yeah, that was kind of the tone I was going for. So I'm glad you got that. I love it. So when you were researching it, did anything kind of surprise you or, or kind of different than you originally thought based on the origin of any of these topics? You know, I've, I've been asked that a lot. And, you know, I would love to say that there was, but there really wasn't a ton. I mean, after being, you know, just a regular consumer, I got into it a little late compared to my friends in high school who did. I got into it in college. So I, by the time I wrote the book, I was 33. So I had about 15 or so years just consuming with different groups of people, you know, from, you know, various states, cities, stuff like that. And then working in the industry gave it a different, uh, another layer on top of it. So really there wasn't too much, you know, aside from maybe the international perspectives, international areas, you know, there's so much different 
you know, nuances, preferences to every region. And then there are also some in the US, but we didn't really dive in too much into that. So it wasn't really eye-opening. Um, when it came to topics, though, the one that did kind of open my eyes was that there was a real split on tipping when it came to uh, the illicit and the legal side. 50% of the crowd was very adamant about tipping your bud tenders as well as your uh, delivery folks. And then others were saying, you know, the prices are built in that they don't have to tip and, you know, citing other reasons and things like that. So yeah, that one I thought was really interesting. And there was no clear answer. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask Kellen's opinion on that since obviously out in Colorado, things are really different. What's your standpoint on that? So Colorado is unique. It kind of builds in this whole because of the banking situation, right? So when you go and purchase a product in a dispensary in Colorado, you are in, in essence using an ATM with your debit card, right? So in essence, you put it in, it looks like same old, any other commercial store, you'd buy something that, right? Put your card in and then it's a debit withdrawal. So then you pay a debit fee, right? And then the stores typically have to round up to the wholest number, right? So they, and then they give you cash back, right? So like the whole thing is like, say you buy something for $70, you're going to end up paying like 78 or $80 for it. So then you end up with like a $5 bill, right? And so like in today's day and age, I'm like, well, what am I going to do with a $5 bill? And so then I did like forces me into this situation and then they'll have like two jars. It's like pick one, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'll just like have to choose which one to tip. So, so that's my experience in Colorado because technically I always end up leaving with some cash. So I'm just like, I'm just going to tip. So I always tip right now. It wasn't the case always. So in like California, Washington, when I lived out there, it was a, a different experience. So we'll see what New York, how it is in New York, if they get the banking stuff figured out before it goes full adult use. Can you expand on like that scenario? Because I think for some people who who don't really understand exactly what you're referring to, because like you went to a dispensary, you bought products with your money and they gave you cash back. Can you kind of share some more why that why that is? Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> maybe a little bit above my pay grade from like the technical portion of it, from like how the whole financial stuff moves around. The IRS listens to our <laughs> conversations. <so we> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But in essence, you're doing an ATM withdrawal from like an ATM machine, right? And for their system to process it, either it's got to be like a metric glitch or has to do with how... Because the ATM company is separate from the dispensary company, Right. So then you're paying the ATM company $3 and then the dispensary charges the ATM company X amount, right? From like a balance sheet perspective. And then they, they have to round up for whatever reason. So then they're charging the other company at 75. You're only buying $70 worth of products. You get $2 back in cash, right? And then the ATM company gets their $3 fee, right? So that's kind of the best way that I understand it. There's probably someone who's... A lot uh, more educated. Can, can I can I just jump in real quick, guys? Yeah. Uh, if anybody's listening, after hearing Kellen say that, can you please call your lawmakers and ask them to pass banking at least regulations for cannabis? Because exactly. This convoluted mess would stop if we actually had some federal regulations. Right. Yes. Yeah, I think that's perfectly said because I I think like that scenario you described is so shocking to people, right? Like when I went to, to Vegas to plan yeah. I don't even know what time it was, and I bought all these products. I was so excited, and as we're finishing the transaction. He's like, I have to round up, but you'll get cash. And I was like, sure, whatever that means, dude. I'm just so excited to buy these products. 
And he hands me back $8. And I'm thinking to myself, I was like, I gave you a credit card. You're giving me products and cash back. I was like, what? What? Am I intoxicated? Like, what is happening right now, sir? So there's something missing in this step. Right. But- he, he's like, well, we rounded up and then we had to do this. And I was like, this is very confusing. And I, I got after, I'm like, tell me, what the hell is going on here? And I think that's the part that's like so surprising is because people are like, well, it's a legal industry. And sure. But something like this is a hurdle and just makes it harder. It's also a billion dollar industry and immediately one of the top producers in the world for the American market. And it's like, you'd think at least they'd come around on the banking. Right. Like, you know, I mean, strong. criminal reform is the one I care about and the mo- I think the most the industry should care about. But sure. banking is essential. And the fact of the matter is it's a billion dollar industry in a quasi legal space that's going to become federally legalized. It's like, why the hell have we at least not gotten our stuff together and at least filmed some fix to at least get that through while we remedy everything else? Yeah, that, that one seems like an easiest one, right? It, at least it should be, in my opinion. It would be a win-win for both parties. And maybe that's why they don't want to do it, because they don't want to make each other look good. I don't know. The two-party system is a, a whole mess for me in, in and of itself. And cannabis regulations is snagged up in it, just like everything else right now. Yeah, but yeah, even, I mean, the, even the IRS is complaining, yeah. too, because they're yeah. literally receiving so much cash from these companies. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, what? Do, we don't have money counters. Like This is the 21st century. Like everyone pays electronically. Like, what are you doing bringing me a briefcase? They're like, I'm paying my taxes. We all need to collectively just roll up to Congress with the IRS and everyone. Just like, can can we get something done here, guys? Like, can you not leave until the next (laughs) couple hundred of you figure this thing out? I don't know. Obviously, it's not going to happen. But like, it it just seems like such a common sense thing that at this point, like, you know, we're still here. We'll we'll get there. It'll be fixed soon. But yeah, when I don't know what it's going to be like in New York. I almost could expect to see them like selling water with like cannabis as a gift and like large donation tip jars is the actual <laughs> cash or something like we'll find a way around it to make an easier process because new yorkers don't have time to figure this stuff out <laughs> no i'm the idea of it being moved back is just kind of a, just a daunting thought because like we've already passed it and everyone's like okay great when can i get the products and it's like not for six months maybe not for longer mm-hmm. yeah meanwhile arizona takes five months and they can get off the ground and they're doing well i i wonder like from an east coast standpoint it'll tend with all the recent kind of cluster states passing it once that first one kind of figures it out and goes, this is the date, I bet you everyone gets their act together really, really fast. Because if not, you're just going to see money transferring across state lines pretty quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. Once your neighbors start opening up the market, you're in trouble. I mean, that's kind of surprising why New York hasn't done already with Massachusetts, but we were talking about it before, you know, New Jersey, uh, once they do it, I don't know what New York's going to do because Pennsylvania is knocking on adult use and they're killing it as a medical market too. So it's melting pressure on New York and, you know, Cuomo, maybe he'll put it through in desperation as, you know, every time he gets into controversy, cannabis seems to get a fair piece of legislation passed through. So I don't know, maybe he'll do that to smooth things over this time. One would argue by the time this comes out, things will be really different for him one way or the other. I know. I know. He, you know, I'm you, you want to shoot a prediction? You can shoot I mean, a prediction <laughs> on the record right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> August 4th, just to clarify, it's August 4th of this prediction. So Trump and Cuomo, in my mind, are very much the same. They're New York brash, kind of asshole-ish politicians. And the fact that Biden and everyone is telling Cuomo to resign, I think will mean he's not going to resign. He's going to dig his feet in. I think it's going to be a mess. I hope I'm wrong. But I Cuomo is very, very, you know, a politician. And he's much about himself. I, my gut says he'll still be there. We might have some cannabis legislation accelerated through because of it. I don't know. Uh, I don't think so at this point, to be honest with you. I think he's 
he's got himself nailed to the wall. We'll see what happens though. He's uh he, he's going to stick around, I think. But uh, we'll make sure to cut the whole thing if it does go bad for him. So it's just perfectly well, oh, lined up for you. Oh well, here um. Good. I'm glad he's gone. That's the other. <laughs> perfect. 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 <laughs> we, we clipped them all. We've got, got it perfectly done. So let's uh, let's switch gears real quick for a quick rapid fire Q and A. Yeah, let's do it. I'll go Andrew first, then Kellen respond. Eating the roach after a session gets you higher. True or false? I'd say true, just because it has an edible effect. I've never done it though. Kellen, I had one of my good friends I lived with for like four years in college and he ate it every single time. And that's what he sweared by. So I'll go through. <laughs> I've eaten it. I don't know if it makes you high or not. They, in college, they made us boot tang it. I don't know if that's like a real saying where you kind of like shoot it down your throat. I don't know what that means. Hopefully it's nothing bad. Cause I don't know what that means. I'm just thinking about it now. It's probably bad to say that without <laughs> knowing. Um, right. Just as, that's a bad thought. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone either. It didn't taste good. And it was like a blonde. It got stuck in my throat. It was a terrible experience. So I would say, don't do it. If someone asks. <laughs> good disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. Best snack for hosting a cannabis get together amongst friends. Mm, best. Oh shit. That's rapid fire. I don't know that that's tough. I mean, I'm just going to go with my favorite and go with spicy chili Doritos. They're not going to be the best choice for the room, but I don't know what to give everyone. And I'll eat the shit out of that bag. Kellen? Nachos. I love nachos. The munchies, guys. Like that has everything. The spicy munchies has everything inside of it. It is the, <laughs> the best combination bag on the planet and has the right name because that's the way you do it. Um, they knew their market. They knew their market and they crushed it, right? It's, you can grab those at a gas station 100 out of 100 times. Be happy with the people are going to be soaked with it and go the spicy version. Wait, can also though, shout out to Ben and Jerry's because they're essentially the ice cream version of munchies and they have gotten me through many a stone sessions. Yeah, that is my my go-to now is the ice cream. And it is incredible. I make the homemade so ice cream Sundays. It, it is you don't do better than that. Oh, yeah. I have a hard time picking which one I want when I'm at the store. Oh, yeah. That's a tough one. Um, we don't go stoned. Oh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> or you just got to hope you get for like a three for 10 special day. Yeah. <laughs> or just go in with like a list. Be like, I need to have a list. <laughs> the packing right. order. <laughs> if you if you roll it, you spark it. True or false? Yes, that is the rule in the book. Uh, the only time that that is possibly changed is if someone else is hosting and, and the non-host rolled it. Then kind of up to you two to decide. Kellen? Uh, I would agree. And by hosting, do you mean like providing the cannabis? Uh, if, someone, I would say if someone gives like... Because I've had I've been in groups where like someone's a much better roller, but then doesn't have any cannabis, and then the another person provides all the cannabis for the blunt or the joint, and so then he'll give the honors back to the individual who provided it. Yeah, I agree. I was thinking host is the person you know whose roof if it's like a house that you're uh, uh, yeah. hosted, but I think I think also provider. Yeah, uh, those two kind of transcend the uh, the roller. Yeah. I was told one time it's bad luck if the person who rolls it doesn't smoke it. So I wonder if that's true. But the next question I ask will definitely demonstrate it not being true. Snoop Dogg has a professional blunt roller on his staff. Are you aware of any other celebrities or influencers who has that? Yeah, Waka Flocka did that years ago. Oh, really? Yeah, Waka Flocka, I think, was the first one I heard talking about that. I think that's great. I mean, you're rich. You smoke a lot of weed. And it's, what, a 50 to 100K jobs rolling joints? Like, if you're that good at it, man, shit, people are making millions off of video games. You might as well be making money off of rolling joints. Yeah, agreed. And yes. he's got to be so good at this point. Yeah, I'm, ter <laughs> like, I'm terrible at it. I, if I had the money, if I had enough money to pay for someone to full-time roll my joints, 
I would do that in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the way to do it. Um, my question would be, how much does someone like that get paid, right? Like, and is that like a twenty four seven job? Are you like an executive assistant? Because if Snoop is the club, leaves at four a.m. and is interested in a in a joint, time to get up. How does mm-hmm. that work? Yeah, I don't know if you can pre-roll them for Snoop because then the freshness goes away. So you can't be that efficient. <laughs> I actually do know. I weirdly, I, this Waka Flocka story is stuck in my head a lot. I guess since my early days, that uh, he was listing it for fifty k a year, and that was like a couple of years ago. So he's got a little bit less notoriety. The market's gotten bigger. I don't know. I mean, for a Snoop joint roller, depending on the amount of time, seventy five to one hundred and twenty k a year could be fair. And this one's yeah, like 60 grand for soup. I was pretty surprised. That's pretty low. I thought, I thought at least six figures, but pretty low. Must, He's must just rolling a... joints. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. But is it on call? Like Brian was saying, like if yeah. you're getting calls in the middle of the night, like we need joints and we can't pre-roll them. I don't know. You know, is it a nine to five joint rolling situation or, you know, I don't know. You got to like a factor in the time. Maybe they have like a humidor, a humidor, like for like the joints, right? Like just keep all there them in go. there and keep them clean. Seth Rogen came out and said something. I almost followed the article and said like, it would save him a ton of time to have someone on his team that do that because how many times he's kind of going through some work and then he's like, oh, it'd be perfect time to have like a joint here. And then he has to stop and do that. He's like, it would save me hours every single day if I had someone on my team doing that. I wonder if that becomes a popular kind of role, like chief of staff, where you're really a chief of role. Yeah, 100%. Honestly, um, the, one of the best business tips I got when I was growing my writing business from friends was um, you know, when you have the money for it, the first things you need to do is automate the processes that you don't want to do that are going to save you time and money. And I mean, Seth Rogen, if it's going to save him hours a day and you know weeks, like, Hell yeah, but invest that money. You're going to make that well back. You know, someone of his caliber, it makes perfect sense to do it. I think I would do that job for free, though. Well, if he's offering money, I'm definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. But like, it's an hang out with Seth all day and smoke would be probably the perfect deal. Not and a bad like, situation. No, the weight could be way worse. Um, let's switch gears back to like the, the normal topics. Biggest misconception in the cannabinoid industry for you? Man, I think we kind of touched on them a little bit already. I think THC being the primary driver factor, uh, THC caps are a big issue. And I think the idea that, you know, things are going to get sorted out really quickly and easily, you know, even if we were to legalize in the next two to five years, which some people are predicting, it's still going to take decades to figure out all the regulations and the hurdles and the back and forth to it all. So I think, you know, people think that we're in this time where things are all going to get done and we're going to wrap it up real soon. And in in a way that's true, but at the same time, like we were saying before, this is going to be going on a lot longer than we probably are all going to be operating in the space. If you could sum up your experience in the cannabinoid space into one main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would that be? Ooh, man, show up, get involved. Previous to the cannabis space being legal, the only way you could get a job was being trustworthy and showing up and introducing yourself. Uh, the way I got into a lot of the space meeting advocates as well as business folks was going to trade events, going to networking events, smoking at lounges, you know, going to uh, protests, to rallies. You know, don't overlook any of it. You know, get involved, go there. Uh, even though the industry is becoming you know, more of a mainstream commodity, serious thing. It's still got all those elements. Uh, show up. Your resume is not going to be the only thing that's going to carry you. Uh, get involved in the industry. Show your face. Show you really care. Um, it's the best way to you know certify yourself. Really well said. Prediction time. 10 years from now, the most popular way people will consume cannabis is that via bowl, a blunt, a dab rig, a capsule, a tablet, a new invention we haven't gotten past. What's your prediction? 
I think we're going to go beverages. A lot of people are banking on beverages. I'm feeling beverages. Um, I mean, we got psychedelic water came out. You know, I think we're already seeing other, you know, substances and compounds getting in there. Um, a lot of people look for familiarity to consume. Um, one of the early beliefs was that the elderly were going to shift towards pills. And I think that worked to a certain degree, but I think edibles really proved to be one. So yeah, my gut says beverages are probably going to be away. Edibles will be a close second. But also I think flour is going to have for a very long time is going to have its market share. And I hope it doesn't fade away more than, you know, at least a 25% of the market holds onto it and, you know, keeps onto the culture, but it's definitely going to shift, I think, to edibles. I agree with with all those statements. I mean, I see flour maintaining a significant market share for at least the next decade. And granted, if you can still purchase flour that's unadulterated, if it turns into most flour being consumed into as joints, and then they can start to to place additives into the flour, like you saw in the tobacco industry, right? I could totally see even a, a larger decrease in market share for flour, but. I think the next big product category is going to be beverages or edibles. Beverages, I think, probably over edibles a little more just because of when most people go to let loose and uh, become inebriated, they're familiar with drinking something to let loose and become inebriated. So I see that similarity, just like Andrew is saying. So... I'm going to go with that. What about you, Brian? What are you thinking? For all the listeners out there that have listened to our podcast for everyone knows Talon stole my straight up verbiage <laughs> on the idea. So like, I'm going to take a different approach because beverage is taken and I intentionally left that out so I can usually have that. Um, That's so. <laughs> you know, I'll take capsules. I think what you were saying about like familiarity aspect is so, so important. And I think when people go to envision like a quote unquote in the bad audio, like a, a a medical product, they're used to taking some sort of capsule form to kind of help them relax or to suit a need. And I think that'll be a common stay for people where they don't really think about it. I think the, the flower aspect will still have its popularity, but I think it'll it'll push towards a different demographic, more the the true traditionalist. And I think for the older generation that is looking for kind of a one-to-one or like a multi-purpose variety of cannabinoids to kind of help them with their arthritis, or whatever needs. I think the, the capsule idea will, will help that because I think it'll be easier for them to get mentally past the concept. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's that comfort, you know, it, it eliminates a big barrier. A lot of people don't want to smoke, you know, if they, if they've never smoked before, they never vape before, but they've always, oh, everyone's had a drink, everyone's had a snack, everyone's had a pill, you know, those are the comforts. They're going to know it. It's going to be a lot more comforting, but just to jump to Kellen, what you were saying too, I think the big thing that in New York that one I'm excited to see is consumption lounges. You know, one of the things we put through is a lot of licenses on consumption lounges. And like you said, people getting, letting loose on beverages and things like that. I'm really interested to see the intersection of how many consumption lounges end up replicating looking like bars. The consumption lounge space is so wide open that we're seeing so many different uh, varieties. It almost seems like restaurants where some are almost like fast casual, some are highbrow, some are more, you know, all different across the board, basically. Um, and I wonder how that's going to affect bars and how much that's going to end up replicating bars. But yeah, it's another reason why I think beverages are going to be the dominant force along the way. And then if, you know, CVS, Rite Aid and all them end up getting into cannabis, like a lot of people think, then I think pills will end up becoming very close behind. You think that dive bars will be able to serve both if they can get those licensing? I think eventually. I think bars are going to eventually want it because they are going to see a lot 
of the decrease into their consumers as time goes on. I mean, look, I love booze. I love being drunk. I love the effect in the moment, you know, but you can overdo it real quick and your night can go to hell. And the next day, we all know what a hangover feels like. And as you get older, they only get worse. With cannabis, you do sometimes feel a hangover-esque effect where you're tired or sluggish the next day. But, you know, it's never really all that bad. And going back to like I was saying about CBD, you know, you can use that to offset the effects to a certain degree. There's different elements to it. And I think that bars eventually are going to get hit really bad by this. You know, besides from people that really love alcohol, you know, a lot of people are going to opt for cannabis lounges and the alternatives and the varieties they have. So yeah, I think possibly by a decade, you could see bars asking to get cannabis integrated into their stuff. Yeah, I think that that's so, so important because like you were saying, like the, the hangover effect is such a nasty one. And for alcohol to me, like I, I love it also, but the next day hangover makes me wonder like, why do I, why do I do this to myself? Like I can yeah. consume all the, the THC products I want and I don't feel as awful as this the next day. And you know, if right now you were like one choice, one product the rest of your life, goodbye booze, sorry, goodbye forever. Hundred percent. I mean, every time I've been hungover in my thirties, I've reached for a bowl to help me get through yeah. it. I've never the next day after smoking too much pot, I've reached for a bottle of booze to make oh, me feel better. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, it's, it's like that'd be oh terrible. Yeah. Cool. That, so yeah, I think we're heading in that direction. So I guess for all of our listeners that want to get in touch, you know, tell us where they can reach you and how they can learn more. Yeah. So um, social media, you can follow me at the Canna Writer on Instagram and Twitter. I'm kind of kicking around on TikTok, but you know, if you want to follow a dead account, go on there uh, right now. Um, you can follow me on my website, IamAndrewWard.com. All my social medias have a link tree where you can find more of my stuff too. And then, yeah, if you have any business pitches, articles, or you want to talk about doing anything, feel free to reach me at Andrew at IamAndrewWard.com. And everyone go buy the book so you understand what the high life is and be sophisticated with your experiences. Yes, please. Thank you. I'm terrible at plugging my book. So thank you for doing that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Simon Schuster, Amazon. Simon Schuster has a bunch of links where you can buy from other bookstores and other independent sources too. So uh, yeah, go check it out. I appreciate all the support. Thanks for your time, Andrew. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.